Welcome to Passionately His, a ministry of Dr. Jeff Loach and St. Paul's Church in Nobleton, Ontario, Canada. Coming up, we'll hear a message from God's Word. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and check us out on YouTube at the link in the description where you'll find past services and messages that will inform your mind and form your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's this week's message. anymore, Toto, says Dorothy. The scriptwriter for the Wizard of Oz was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, I expect, but those words have never been more true than they are today. We're not in Kansas anymore could be the motto of the Christian church, even if they're in Kansas. Christians outside the global south are facing a more antagonistic culture in our time than we've ever seen since Christianity was tolerated by the Roman Empire in the early part of the 4th century. I mean, think about that. For almost 1,700 years, more than 1,600 years, the church has held a place of prominence in society, a favored position. And we have seen that erode in our lifetime. This means that what we've been doing as the church, whether for survival or for growth, doesn't work anymore because the rules have changed. The tide has shifted. The culture no longer views us with respect, but with disdain or at best some sort of peculiar curiosity. And that means if the church is to continue, we cannot play as if the rules have not changed. When I was in a church leadership program 20 years ago, I was in a mixed group of Canadians and Americans, and sometimes in the evenings we would play Crazy Eights. And the Americans would get frustrated with us because we would introduce rules they didn't know, and they started calling them Canadian rules. I don't really know if there's different rules between Canadian and American Crazy Eights, but it drove them bananas and forced them to adjust their strategy to win the game. And in the game of Crazy Eights... That is our world. The rules have changed. That's why if you look at what a Sunday worship gathering looks like today and compare it even to what it looked like when I arrived here 15 years ago, the differences are obvious. But understand this. We haven't made the changes to suit me. I like the old stuff too, just like many of you do. But our approach to worship has changed Because the world around us has changed. And I will also say this, not as a warning so much as a harbinger, 
that the world has changed at a faster rate than we have. When I was younger, I thrived on change. When I was a kid, I would rearrange my bedroom furniture every few weeks, and that's pretty challenging to do in a 10 by 10 room. But I used to love change. As we age, we tend to have a greater appreciation, shall we say, for consistency. Even I am challenged to change nowadays. But the reality is that the church, and I'm referring to the church universal, not just our congregation, will shrivel up and die if it does not make adjustments to to attempt to keep up with the changes in society. Now, understand this too. There's different ways of looking at how to do that. In some circles, that means throwing out the baby with the bathwater. They've created a church that looks more like the world, and that can have several facets to it. Uh, In some cases, it might make a church gathering look more like a rock concert with a mosh pit, or it might make it look like uh, an organ recital with a devotional attached to it. It can mean worship gatherings whose proclamation sounds like as much as it's coming from a cable news channel, left or right. What I think the Bible teaches us is that we should maintain the unchanging truth of God's Word, the good news of Jesus, without compromise, all the while changing how that message is proclaimed. And the place where we'd learn to do that is this 28-chapter book in the middle of the New Testament called the Acts of the Apostles. Never before in history since the 4th century has our relationship so closely resembled that of the early church when it comes to the culture. So why not use its story as our guidebook? One of my classmates years ago was appointed a student pastor to three fledgling little churches in South Muskoka. This was 30 years ago. These three little churches had a smaller combined attendance than what we get on a Sunday morning, even back then. So my friend sat down with the elders of all three churches, and they studied the book of Acts together reasoning that if they used Acts as their guidebook, they could apply what they learned and bring growth to the church. And within 10 years, those three little churches were empty. Now here's why. Sounds like bad news, but the reason they were empty is because they had amalgamated and built a new facility, and within a couple of years of opening that new facility, they'd grown to the point that they needed three services. Today, that church has multiple services across two campuses in two communities, and it continues to register growth every year, even in the swirl of cultural change that seems impossible to keep up with. And it all started because they spent time together studying the book of Acts, and they were brave enough to implement what they learned. I can't promise we will have the same results as a result of studying the book of Acts together, but I can promise you this. We will be better equipped to face the culture no matter what it might throw at us. In the original language of the New Testament, the book is simply called praxis. Acts, practices, if you will. And since the second century, it's been often called the Acts of the Apostles. Many people think it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because in reality, you couldn't do it without the Holy Spirit, whom we will see in chapter 2 make his appearance. 
But I like how J.B. Phillips translated it in his uh, paraphrase that he did in the 1960s. He called it the young church in action. I like that. In the, er- in the earliest days of the church following the ascension of Jesus, people of the way, people of Jesus, were a slim minority in society. Christians were viewed as weird. Uh, they were viewed as worshipers of multiple gods by the Jews, seen as treasonous by the Romans. But the early church knew it had a mission, and it had to do whatever it took to accomplish that mission. But the early church also knew from the apostles' teaching that they could not do this alone. They needed the Holy Spirit. And happily, that was Jesus' parting gift to the church. Uh, As he ascended, he promised the Holy Spirit, and ten days later, that's what they got. First couple of chapters chronicle the laying of the foundation of their mission and power as the church went out into the world to proclaim the amazing love of God the Father, the grace and joy of the Lord Jesus Christ, all in the power of of the Holy Spirit. So let's get started on this little adventure. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Now, let's clear a few things up. First, the book was written by Luke. Uh, Luke, the writer of the third gospel. And we know this because of this reference to this dude named Theophilus. Uh, When Irma read the prologue of the gospel of Luke, the first few verses of the first chapter of that gospel, Luke refers to Theophilus, and some say this is a, a group of Christians because the word literally means loved by God or even lover of God. Uh, perhaps referring to Christians generally. But when in Luke chapter 1, he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, I can think of sort of a Bill and Ted theme for that, you know, most excellent Theophilus. Um, But he's certainly referring to an individual. So this must have been a strong Christian, strong believer in the first century. Also, as I mentioned, Acts is the second volume of the third gospel, Luke sees Acts as a continuation of his story from the early church. Luke himself was a physician and an historian, so he was somebody who liked to get things correct. And just as the Gospel of Luke ends with an account of the ascension, so the book of Acts begins with an account of the ascension, and he picks it up here in chapter 1. He says that in the first book, uh, his Gospel, he wrote about everything Jesus began to do and teach. It was the foundation for what would take place in the book of Acts, that the church would continue the work. Luke says that Jesus did his ministry and gave his teaching, and before he ascended, he gave them further instructions, marching orders through the Holy Spirit. Okay, verse 3. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. That reference to 40 days is why Ascension Day is always celebrated on a Thursday. 40 days after Easter, always, uh, 40 days after a Sunday is always going to fall on a Thursday. Uh, And it marked the day of Ascension. And in those 40 days, Jesus appeared to the apostles many times with convincing proofs that he was alive 
and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom of God is a term we throw around a lot. But what does it actually mean? Well, the kingdom of God could also be called the reign of God. It is the uh, proclamation of good news and salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. And it is that which Jesus will come to fulfill at his second coming. And in the meantime, bringing the kingdom of God to bear becomes the job of the church, both the church about whom Luke wrote in Acts and the church that has followed since in the, since the ink dried on the last words of chapter 28. Verse 4. This is, this is kind of peculiar. Once when he was eating with them. Do you ever think about the fact that the risen Lord Jesus didn't need to eat? But he did. It was like just another way of proving that, uh, that he was truly alive. So once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knew that at his ascension, his disciples might, might do just what they did after the crucifixion. They kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's been a ride, and they go back to doing what they were doing before. He wants to make sure that doesn't happen, so he commissions them uh, and gives them the Holy Spirit to make sure that they carry on this mission. Stay in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit will come and baptize them. Now, there's different ways of looking at this, this concept, but the word baptism literally means to dip or to immerse. Uh, and in this case, I think it could allude to a sense of being overwhelmed, being immersed in the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they would be immersed in the work of the kingdom when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And we'll read more about that in chapter 2. But first, Jesus must ascend. But before that, he has a word for his disciples before he goes in verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? If you could ever picture Jesus having a massive eye roll, this would be the time. Like he's been teaching them for three years about the kingdom, about what it really is, and they're still focused on the politics, on the land, on the territory. John Calvin said of this verse that there are as many errors in this question as there are words. The disciples were thinking about the need to witness the immediate triumph of the nation of Israel over the Romans. It was politics, it was territory, it was national. Jesus had a much broader picture of the kingdom. So he corrects them in verse 7. The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. What a great corrective for us even today. Because, you know, maybe you've heard there's a war going on in Israel right now. There's all kinds of people who are trying to find this war in the Bible. It's not there. Focus on the work of the kingdom not on when it's going to be consummated. Just be ready. Good corrective. Only the Father knows for sure. 
Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what we have here is kind of like a, a geographic table of contents for the book of Acts. The disciples are to be witnesses, telling, him, uh, telling people about Jesus in Jerusalem, then throughout the surrounding province of Judea, then to the outlying region of Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the, nor the world as they knew it. You could perhaps picture Jesus drawing this with a stick in the sand in sort of concentric circles. This is what your mission is, and it just ever expands. But they were not to do this a moment before they had received the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that important part. Verse 9. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. Jesus ascended to the Father. The cloud sort of symbolizes what in the Old Testament they would have called the Shekinah glory of the Lord, or maybe as a reminder of the transfiguration when Jesus appeared with Elijah and Moses on that mountain. Also, the cloud from which Jesus would descend upon his return in glory. As they strained to see him rising in heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. These two men, angels, messengers of the Lord, that's really what an angel is, right? An angel is a messenger of the Lord, not looking like Tinkerbell, something like that. Uh, they're saying, basically giving them a mild rebuke. Guys, what are you doing staring there with you, standing with, huh? Huh? No. Jesus just told you to go to work. Don't stand there and stare. He'll be back. Go do what he said. I think in some ways, the disciples' reaction might have been the, the ultimate definition of the word gobsmacked. I like that word. I don't know about you. I'm a fan of that word. I think these guys were gobsmacked. Standing there, mouths gaping open, wondering what on earth or what in heaven just happened. But Jesus had charged them with a task, and the rest of the book is dedicated to Luke's depiction of the apostles' fulfillment of that task that had been given to them by Jesus. So what are we to make of all this? Jesus tells his disciples to be witnesses. When we think of a witness, we might think of somebody who takes the stand in a courtroom, promising to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help they God and then responds to questions based on his or her perspective of the situation surrounding which the alleged crime was committed. Or maybe we think of a witness as somebody who saw a traffic accident happen and sticks around to tell the investigating police officer what she or he saw. A witness is someone who tells his or her story. As witnesses for Jesus, we are called to tell our story, and specifically our story with Jesus, which, by the way, necessitates having a story with Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We can talk about it again if you like. If you don't have a story with Jesus, I'd like to hear from you so that we can get you a story with Jesus. 
As we learn from Acts chapter 1, Jesus knew that for the apostles as for us, this job of witnessing would be impossibly difficult to do on our own. And so he gave us the Holy Spirit. The two main themes of the book of Acts are the Holy Spirit and witness. There's other sub-themes that we'll see throughout the book. I'll just throw you a few examples. The priority of evangelism, the power of the Holy Spirit, community life, teaching, prayer, uh, breaking human barriers in Christ, the place of suffering, the sovereignty of God, the reaction of society to the gospel, and even the legal status of Christianity. But the Holy Spirit and his role in human witness take center stage. So how does the Holy Spirit empower our witness? We're going to learn more about that when we get to chapter 2, when the excitement of Pentecost is laid before us. But while the glitz and glamour of Pentecost is often what people look for, the daily routine of life in the Spirit is more commonly found in the book of Acts as it is in our lives today. It's worth noting that Luke, the author, demonstrates in both his books, in Luke and in Acts, that discipleship is more important than mere numbers. Discipleship is more important than mere numbers. Every year the denomination asks congregation for for statistics, and uh, we send in how many people we baptized, how many people were added and removed from the role, how much money was raised for God's mission, and so forth. But there's an even more important statistic that is never requested, perhaps because it is not as easy to quantify, and that is this. How deep were people going in their faith? How deep were people going in their faith? I'm going to leave that question for now because we're going to see it show up a lot more in the book of Acts as we go along. But our scripture focus for today shows us that we are to be witnesses. Where are we to be witnesses? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. For the apostles, that was geographically specific to them. And for us, it is also geographically specific. It doesn't mean we have to go to Jerusalem. Right now, I would not advise going to Jerusalem. But it means being engaged with the gospel in your own community where you live. Be a witness in your community. It should also mean, thinking of Judea, that we would be witnesses in the region around our communities. It means that we should be witnesses in the places where there are people we don't necessarily get along with. See, Samaria was, to the people in Jerusalem, they were not just the hicks, right? They were the heretics, just even more. They, they just so disagreed with each other. But Jesus said, and Jesus broke that barrier down, right? But Jesus said, you have to go not only to your own people, but to the people you don't like very much. That's a word for us as well. And then, of course, we must go to be witnesses wherever we go in the world. And that process, in that process, we should trust the sovereignty of God, knowing that even Jesus submitted to the Father when it came to the ultimate establishment of his kingdom. And we need to know that we are not fully equipped to witness without the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not fully equipped until we have the Holy Spirit. I'll say more about that in a minute, but let me say this. Witness must become 
reflexive. When people train for military service, they learn many disciplines, several of which could prepare them for battle, which may or may never arise. We think maybe once a soldier's trained to fire a gun, that's all there is to it. Except when the pressure of battle comes along, sometimes our minds play tricks on us. And so not only do they have to know it in here, but they have to know it in here. It's muscle memory that they have to acquire. These things then, as people train during peacetime, become axiomatic, reflexive, so that when they're in the heat of the battle, both their brains and their muscle memory kick in and they can do what they're trained to do without even having to think about it. Likewise for Christians, it must be reflexive. It must be something that we just do without having to psych ourselves up to do it. When witness is not reflexive, we don't naturally include it in conversation. And I learned recently that I have a way to go in this department myself. So don't be discouraged if, uh, if you find it difficult. I mentioned in a recent encouragement email uh, that I listed a bunch of stuff for sale on Facebook Marketplace. And one fellow came to the church here to pick up his items. And he, lo- he said he had looked at my public Facebook profile on which all of our services are linked. And he, he said to me, you are a very religious man. And my response could have been sardonic, but it was not. I simply said, I have been preaching the gospel for over 35 years. Now, I didn't deny what he said, which is a good first step, but what I didn't do was take it a step further. What I should have done was gone deeper into that because when he said, you are a very religious man, he was obviously making some kind of an invitation to a conversation about why that was important to me and I didn't walk through that door. Now, where would it have gone? I don't know. But there is the opportunity so often to be able to share a little bit about what Jesus means to you. And more often than not, we forfeit it. Had my desire for witness been reflexive, I could have shared my faith story with him and led him to Christ. So how do we make our witness for Christ reflexive so that we can share our faith as automatically as a soldier operates a weapon. Well, first you ask the Holy Spirit to give you the help you need and the desire to share your faith with others. Because remember, Jesus knew that even the guys who hung around with him for three years in person weren't going to be able to handle this job on their own, so he gave them the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the Spirit to equip us, to comfort us, to empower us for witness. And too often, when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about him in terms of comfort and peace or maybe warm feelings, what the young hip people nowadays are calling ASMR. I just learned about this. Apparently, this is a thing. Autonomous sensory meridian response. Term's been around for a couple hundred years, but only in the past couple of years has it gained traction in mainstream thought usually in some sort of self-indulgent sensory experience. Now, people in charismatic church traditions have been experiencing this for over a 100 years, giving it all kinds of names, but today they might call it ASMR. 
Us reformed people, we could learn something from our charismatic sisters and brothers about having feeling in our worship. Feeling other than angst or anger. (laughs) The joy of the Lord is your strength. But the Holy Spirit is not just about feelings. We need to remember that the Holy Spirit came to equip us for ministry, for service, for witness. So witness becomes reflexive when we seek the Holy Spirit to empower us. And secondly, witness becomes reflexive when we practice, practice, practice. Some weeks ago I talked about how important it is to be able to share our faith without concern for what other people think about us. Again, don't be a jerk about it. But if you're more concerned about your own reputation than Jesus' reputation, it might be time to re-examine your relationship with him. Practice sharing your faith first by writing it down. You know, take a nice fountain pen, decent quality paper, ink color that you like, and just write down your story with Jesus. Go over it and know it. It's, I mean, it's your story. You might as well own it. And then practice sharing your faith by telling that story to a Christian friend. We encourage each other when we know one another's journeys of faith, so it's for, it, tell it first to a person who's got a sympathetic ear. And then share your faith with people you know who might actually wonder about this aspect of your life. Because if you genuinely like somebody, you probably want to know what makes them tick. And the same would be true for others with you witness. After that, the Lord may open a door for you to share your story with people whom you don't know personally, but the topic may come up organically in whatever conversation that you're having, but it needs to be natural. You're unlikely to win somebody for Christ by walking up to a stranger on the street all full of vinegar and obnoxiousness and tell that person you're a Christian when that person doesn't know you from a can of paint. So seek the Holy Spirit's empowerment and practice. That's how you can witness to the kingdom of God. In our current cultural climate, this is harder than ever, but it's also more important than ever. Just because Jesus ascended into heaven, because one day he'll return. We don't know when. Our job is to be ready. Our job is to be witnesses. And by being witnesses, we are giving other people the tools to be ready for that second coming of Jesus when he will establish his kingdom on earth forever. And we want others to be part of that kingdom, but that will only happen when they confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they will only confess when we tell our story. We're not in Kansas anymore. So step out in faith and tell your story. Witness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus who has saved us by his grace through his death and resurrection. And thank you for your Holy Spirit who empowers us to tell the story of how Jesus' death and resurrection have saved us from sin so that others will experience his grace in their own lives. 
It's not easy. It's even a little scary, we admit. So pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that we will have the guts to witness to your kingdom and the radical difference you have made in our lives. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you've been challenged to step out in faith and witness today, then start maybe by telling me your story. I'd love to hear it. I'd love to pray with you. So speak to me after or use the connection card. It's in paulsnobledon.ca slash connect. And it will be good to be in touch together. It's a different world. And we need to be ready to testify to what Jesus has done for us and can do for others. Thanks for listening. Again, please subscribe. And if you have any questions or would like prayer, go to stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect and fill in the connection card. I'll be glad to follow up with you. Blessings for your day.